Konnichiwa, and welcome to the Board Game Dojo, the podcast from Tokyo, Japan, where we use science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. We are on part three of our series exploring the history of board games, and we have made it to the 1900s, where today we will talk about the game of life, Monopoly, and a few others as we draw closer to the modern board game scene. If you like the series, we'd love to get some five-star reviews on whatever podcast player you use. It really helps us out as new content creators. And as we near the end of our series, if you have any ideas for future episodes, let us know on Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. We've got a lot of information today, so let's jump right in. And without further ado, begin today's history field trip. Today, we are going back to the country I hail from, the United States. We head over to Boston, Massachusetts, home of Dunkin' Donuts, America's first subway system, and where pronouncing any R sounds is completely optional and seemingly frowned upon. But for today's story, it is important because of the people who founded it, the Puritans. I learned all about these settlers growing up, and we had always learned that they had fled Europe to escape persecution and wanted to set up a land of religious freedom. This is, shall we say, completely and unequivocally false. The Puritans got their name as a pejorative, branding them as extremist for their time. They believed people's lives should be consumed by religion. Part of this group was called the Separatist Puritans, and they were the extreme of the extremists. They wanted to separate entirely from the Church of England and first went to the Netherlands, where they were disgusted by the more liberal sects of Protestantism that was popular where they landed. So, unable to go back to England due to the rise of anti-Puritan forces from the Church of England, set their sights west, which only furthered their self-image as the people of God because now they were like the people in Exodus on their way to the promised land. As years passed, more Puritans and pilgrims came over to create what we learned in school as a land of religious freedom, but this was not at all true. Quakers were killed for being of different faiths, the natives' lands were taken from them, and those who preached religious toleration were kicked out, like Anne Hutchinson and Roger Williams, the latter who would found Rhode Island. Essentially, the Puritans came to America to establish religious freedom for themselves. One New Hampshire pastor even talked about that the New England plantations were not one of trade, but of religion. Worldly gain was not the point, according to him. Religion was. The theory was simple. If one led a life of puritanical values, then one would have a happy and successful life. The reason I opened today's board gaming history with this is that for over a hundred years afterwards, many popular games that were brought over from Europe would invoke Christian ideals and or morality. We started this whole series with the agricultural revolution because it spawned an exponential growth in leisure time. Well, it happened in the early 19th century as well. With the industrialization and urbanization of the United States, the American middle class experienced an increase in leisure time. The home turned from a place of economy into a place of leisure and education under the supervision of mothers. As a result, the demand increased for children's board games, emphasizing literacy and Christian principles, morals, and values. One such game was called The Mansion of Happiness, an instructive, moral, and entertaining amusement. 
published by W. and S. B. Ives of Salem, Massachusetts. It was brought over from Britain and was the puritanical version of a game called The Game of the Goose, which is a game I wish I had time to cover in and of itself more than just a few moments here. The Game of the Goose was popular for hundreds of years and is a basic racing game where one rolls dice and moves around a spiral track. Some spaces are good, like landing on a goose, while others are bad, like death, which sends players back to the start. There are many versions with different themes ranging from ice skating to Richard Nixon, some selling for thousands of dollars and hanging in museum. I urge you to check out some pictures online. In the Mansion of Happiness version, these good and bad spaces praised puritanical virtues and imposed harsh punishments on sins. The rule stated that whoever becomes a Sabbath breaker must be taken to the whipping post, or players who landed on immodesty would be sent back to the space they came from and instructed to not even think of happiness. To make the game even more acceptable to homes in New England, the dice were replaced with a teetotum, which is kind of like a top with numbers with. This was because dice were obviously a sign of Satan. This ploy seemed to work, and the game sold modestly well. In fact, even though playing games was considered forbidden on the Sabbath in many places, some households allowed the playing of the Mansion of Happiness because it was seen as an educational tool about godly virtues. How much fun it was, well, I don't think the rules actually needed to warn about being happy while playing. But to a man named Milton Bradley, this game was inspiring, a seemingly divine revelation. A devout Methodist Episcopal, he wrote in his journal that he happened to play this game one evening at the house of a friend, and conceived the idea of a game. A game that he would market as a highly moral game, that encourages children to lead exemplary lives. The goal of the game was to live a good life, choosing one's path wisely. Players who landed on honesty would advance to happiness, perseverance led to success, etc. However, gambling led to ruin, and intemperance led to poverty. There was even a suicide square depicting a man hanging by a noose, which eliminated players from the game. While the game of the goose went in only one direction, Bradley's game gave choice, reinforcing that one had personal responsibility. The teetotem used would give a number and a direction, so one would have a choice in the next step one took on the checkerboard. He would call this game the checkered game of life. Scared of what New Englanders would think of the game due to their ideation that games were a gateway drug into gambling, Bradley decided to pack several hundred copies of his game into his bag and go to the place Bostonians saw as a place of wickedness. The home of Yankee Stadium itself, New York City. That's not even a joke. As almost a premonition of the future rivalry, Bradley went to New York because he thought the people would be more interested in a game due to them not listening to the devout preachings of the Puritans and that they needed a game to teach them these virtues. And it worked. He sold out of all of his copies and word of the game spread. So that's the end of the story, right? That's how we got the game of life. Not quite yet. After selling out of his copies with positive publicity, he did what any logical businessman would do. He stopped selling the games and went into the color printing business, something he did before his revelation of the game. During this time, Abraham Lincoln was campaigning to be the next president, and people wanted color prints of his portrait. Bradley was selling the prints like hotcakes, staying up all night to make more prints to sell out of the next day. 
And then an 11-year-old girl from New York changed everything with a letter. She penned to Lincoln, You would look a great deal better for your face. It's so thin. All the ladies like whiskers, and they would tease their husbands to vote for you, and then you would be president. Basically, grow a beard, dude. And he did. It became the iconic look, and people wanted nothing to do with the former prince that Bradley had made of the beardless Lincoln. Customers asked for their money back, and Bradley ended up lighting thousands of his prints on fire. In financial ruin, Bradley decided to once again start making his checkered game of life, as orders never stopped coming in for them. He started selling pocket-sized versions of the checkered game of life, backgammon, and chess to Union soldiers during the Civil War, and full-size versions to the public, and the Milton Bradley Company became one of the biggest game manufacturers in the U.S. Later in life, Bradley focused on educational materials, and one of his creations was a standardized set of art supplies for art education, a forerunner to Crayola crayons. This was due partly to his continued interest in kindergarten and art education, but it was also partly to do with the waning interest in moral games, with people like George Parker of the Parker Brothers leading the charge into games that were all about having fun. People lost interest in playing games where there was suicide and whipping posts for bad behavior. They wanted to play games of cycling or play a game of Telegraph Boy, which allowed them to rise the ranks from errand boy to CEO. The checkered game of life was done. Out of the catalog of games until a man named Reuben Klamer resurrected it 60 years later. Reuben Klamer was born in Canton, Ohio in 1922 to Romanian Jewish immigrants and... After serving in the U.S. Navy and completing postgraduate work in engineering, worked for the Ideal Toy Company, where he created the Arc Link Letter Spin a Hoop, which was a knockoff of the Hula Hoop. The Hula Hoop was so surprisingly successful that its creators never got a patent, leaving it open for others to copy, like the Spin a Hoop. Did you know the Hula Hoop was actually banned here in Japan because the hip motion was seen as inappropriate? Anyways, Clamor also helped produce toys and guns for the show Man from Uncle. He was very successful in the toy industry and had an idea he wanted to pitch to Milton Bradley Toy Company. Due to his fame, they took to the meeting and in June 1959, he would pitch them his idea. How about an art center? You could use your crayons and art supplies. They weren't interested, but they instead asked him if he would try creating a game for them to mark their 100th anniversary as a company. They let him comb through their archives and in it he found dusty and old, a game he had never seen before. The checkered game of life. He wasn't awestruck with the game itself, but the idea of a game about living life intrigued him so greatly that he left without saying anything to anyone about his idea. With Bill Markham, they created 3D buildings and scenery using plastic so that the game would look good on television, while also using small pink and blue pegs to put into little plastic cars that players would use to traverse the board. Within a few months, he was back at Milton Bradley, and this time, the company loved his idea. In its resurrection, New York would again be where the game of life took off. At the 1960 New York Toy Fair, it was unveiled to immediate interest from retail buyers. The game would become one of the first nationally advertised board games, and is now currently the second highest selling board game behind only Monopoly. But the game has transformed since then. Like life itself, it never develops in a straight line. It has transformed, trying to, like many of us, keep up with the times. The 1960s version was already a version I don't think Milton Bradley would have liked. The only god of the game seemed to be money. 
At the end of the day, the person who lived the best life in the game was measured by the amount of money one had. That meant the right from the beginning, the choice was important. Go to college or go straight into business. And since it was the 1960s, that job you got was for life. The spinner was chosen both out of the company not wanting to use evil dice, but also because they didn't want to copy Monopoly's use of dice, because clearly Monopoly was the only game using dice. The game taught people about life and even guided them. Going to college was a good decision, buy insurance, invest in stocks, which was super novel at the time. These were all conversations spurred by the game. The heart surgeon who would save Claimer's life later mentioned that the game of life was why he chose to be a surgeon in the first place. It wasn't for a greater purpose or anything. It was because, as he put it, every time he was a doctor in the game, he would win. But there were also spaces that wouldn't really fly today, or at least not make sense. For example, the space that told players they discovered a uranium deposit, which harked back to the day when the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission promised lots of money if people discovered uranium deposits. There were also poor farms, places where people would work the land in return for a bed and regular meals until they died, which were changed to the much nicer-sounding country cottage. Hasbro, which bought the Milton Bradley Company, has tried many changes to keep life relevant. They experimented with a no-money version in the 90s, changed how insurance worked after U.S. states made automobile insurance mandatory, made college more expensive, thanks for that reminder, Hasbro, and jobs were no longer for the whole game. Later spinoffs included credit cards and one version where you could play as long as you wanted. But stepping back, the game of life's, well, life, is an imperfect summary of the U.S. in a way. It started out in an almost fantastical, or at least idyllic, image. The game of life was won, it was thought, by living the most puritanical life full of virtue. But as the years passed, this wasn't the real America, and the game failed. The America of the 1900s had virtues, sure, but they were, for many, about ambition and capitalism, not modesty. In the mid-1900s, the game of life was a winner-takes-all mindset, a dog-eat-dog world, as they say. But times change and so do values, and what we think as important. Although we can laugh at Hasbro for making a version with no money, it's important to realize that it was done in reflection to the changing focus on what makes a life happy and successful. The game of life, if nothing else, is a parlor game, a game that was deservingly inducted in the Toy Hall of Fame in 2010, and for many, a fun game played with the family as a child. But it's also a reflection of who we are, a snapshot in time of what we see ourselves as. Are we constantly choosing between religion and vice? Looking for a uranium deposit to get rich? Or needing new careers? Is money the end-all be-all, or is life a combination of events to look back on as we grow old? You don't have to have an answer now. Play the game, make mistakes, and just enjoy the ride. This section is dedicated to Ruben Clammer, who died at the age of 99 last year. May you be enjoying your eternal stay at your own millionaire estates. Today's quick hit brought to you by absolutely no one. I think we might be the only podcast not sponsored by HelloFresh or Squarespace or Simply Safe or pretty much anything. Huh. Can you name the game that is owned in over 60% of households that has a 5-year-old or younger? I'll give you a hint, it's pretty sweet. 
Candyland continues to sell over 1 million copies every year, but did you know that it was invented as escapist entertainment for kids in the polio ward? Polio was once a feared disease. It struck suddenly, paralyzing its victims, most of whom were children. The virus targets the nerve cells in the spinal cord, inhibiting the body's control over its muscles. This leads to muscle weakness, decay, or outright fatality in extreme cases. The leg muscles are the most common sites of polio damage, along with the muscles of the head, neck, and diaphragm. In the last case, a patient would require the aid of an iron lung to breathe. Treatment typically involves physical therapy to stimulate muscle development, followed by braces to ensure that the affected parts of the body retain their shape. Although more common in children, adults got the disease as well, including former President of the United States Franklin D. Roosevelt, or FDR, who got the disease when he was 39 years old. Well, so did a schoolteacher named Eleanor Abbott, who also got the disease in her late 30s. What polio meant, often, was confinement, especially before vaccines eliminated it in the U.S. So Abbott, while in the polio ward with mostly kids, set about making a game to escape the dullness and sadness, if only for a bit. What she came up with was Candyland, a game where literally all one could do was move, move, move. It depicted kids having a stroll, not just a physical therapy, but a leisurely walk. The path was, in a stark contrast to the rigidity and blandness of the hospital, a rainbow winding road filled with color and sweet characters. The first published version even had a boy depicted in the walking races used in polio treatments. I outgrew Candyland, as everyone is bound to do, but that was also the point. It wasn't meant to be a game for life. No, no, it was meant to be the first steps of a journey beyond a debilitating disease. But for that moment, strolling through the candy cane forest, it was a sweet escape, as it continues to be more than 60 years later. This has been your quick hit. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Thanks for joining us. If you've never heard of a single tax society, I wouldn't blame you. In 1879, an economist, Henry George, proposed the idea in his book, Progress and Poverty. It was written at a time when strikes were being violently broken up, Rockefeller and Vanderbilt were at the height of their power and wealth, and this was a time when some called them robber barons. George's idea, he thought, would fix this inequality between those who worked the land and those who reaped the profits. He argued that undeveloped land was God-given, and that any increase in value was because of the hard work of the people. So really, the money that the landlords made should belong to everyone, and the government should then take that money back on behalf of society by imposing it as a land value tax. This tax would be so immense that no other taxes would be needed, hence a single tax system. It would allow people to keep the money that they earned through their hard labor and would narrow the gap between those who are rich and poor. It would encourage people to use the land efficiently, raise the income of workers, and prevent landlords from basically reaping all the rewards with little to no work. The idea gained a following after the book became a bestseller, one of which was a woman named Elizabeth Maggie, a brilliant and talented woman who was theatrical, a writer, and who got a patent for her invention of a device that allowed paper to be consistently and easily fed into a typewriter at a time when women held less than 1% of patents in the United States. George died in 1897 and the movement stalled, but Maggie had an idea to liven it up again. A board game. Five years after his death, she had the game, 
the game that would bring his arguments to life by demonstrating the harm monopolistic landlords cause and how a land value tax was the cure. It was called The Landlord's Game. Catchy, right? The game worked a little like this. You would go around the board buying land, utilities, railroads, and properties, and each time you made it around, you passed a space that said, Labor upon Mother Earth produces wages. But you could also land on spaces to pay taxes, take a chance, or go to jail. Maggie explained the game as showing how the landlord gets his money and keeps it. Children would learn the quickest way to accumulate wealth and gain power is to get all the land they can in the best localities and hold on to it. This would undeniably cause the kids to see the injustice of the current land system, and they would grow into adults that would look to change it. In the alternative version, the single tax version, there was no poorhouse, no jail, and rent went to the bank, with players earning money if the other players built houses on their land. She again got the patent and made copies for people around town, which was actually the town of Arden, an experimental town founded on Georgia's economics. Scott Nearing was an economics professor at the University of Pennsylvania who lived in Arden and played the game. He made his own copy by hand and used it to teach his students about the effects of rent gouging, calling the game Anti-Landlord because he didn't know the name. His students came up with a better name, Monopoly. Maggie got positive reviews from the town, but that was probably because the town was very open to her ideas, especially since they had moved to a town based on those very ideas. Parker Brothers thought the game was too political and too complex, which, I mean, they were right. That was the point. We were at the point just after the checkered game of life had run its course, and people just wanted to race around boards as airship captains. It also didn't help that Americans had a new fear about Reds. And stop me when you've heard this before, they started calling the single tax movement the worst thing they could think of. Socialist. For the record, George and Marx hated each other, with Marx calling George's single tax system utterly backward, and George calling Marx the prince of muddleheads, which is definitely an insult I'm going to start to use. But while Maggie was failing, Monopoly was getting popular in universities. Students made homemade copies, changed rules, and it spread throughout New England. They used everyday items as playing pieces, cut out little homes, and changed spaces for the times like adding a free parking space for the new rise of automobiles. In Williamstown, Massachusetts, Daniel Lehman introduced it to friends Ferdinand and Louis Thun in 1927, and they added community chess cards. Community chess were volunteer-run groups that would collect donations and distribute the money to local causes. In 1927, there were more than 300 community chests. This version would be sold as the game Finance, and is pretty much the same game as Monopoly we know today. But Lehman ran into the same problem Maggie did. It was too complicated. It was this version of the game that got into the hands of Ruth Hoskins, who had first played it when it was called Monopoly. Hoskins and her Quaker friends made a version that reflected the city they lived in, Atlantic City, including Baltic Avenue. And it was this version that went to Philadelphia, where Charles and Olive Todd got a hold of it and made a copy themselves, including unintentional misspellings and intentional renames. Todd introduced his game to childhood friend Esther Jones and her husband Charles Darrow. At dinner, he introduced this great new game, and Darrow was smitten with it. He asked Todd to make him his own set and write up the rules. Todd did, and then never heard from Darrow. What? Why? Well, he shortly found out why, because he saw a poster announcing that Dara was demonstrating his new game called Monopoly at a local bank. 
Dara had asked his cartoonist friend Franklin Alexander to liven up the board, and the game was now for sale, including those unintentional misspellings I mentioned earlier, which was why it was so clear which version Daro had stolen. These copies didn't come with player tokens, so like had happened in college dormitories before, players were asked to use household objects like thimbles. He then, like Maggie and Lehman before him, went to Parker Brothers. And guess what? They denied him too. But oddly, the largest department store in Philadelphia didn't. Wanamakers and then toy store FAO Shorts started selling it, and then started selling out immediately, then ordering more, and then selling out again. Eventually, Parker Brothers did hear about this and struck a deal for the game where, during negotiations, they wanted to make sure they only needed to credit him. Are you the sole inventor? They asked. Yes. They loved the charm of using household trinkets, so Parker Brothers commissioned the company that made Cracker Jack toys to make the original player pieces including a shoe, a top hat, and yes, that thimble. Oh, and they added a guy that resembled J.P. Morgan that we know today as Mr. Monopoly. But what was so interesting was the immediate result of Monopoly's success. It wasn't just about making money, which it definitely was. It had a different effect as well. It gave adults a game to play, and it is credited with being the game that sparked a revolution that gave companies like Parker Brothers and Milton Bradley enough confidence to invest in games that were targeted at adults, not just families. There was just one teensy tiny little problem. Parker Brothers found out Dara lied. They crossed the country paying off people who had designed variations of Monopoly, including Elizabeth Maggie, whom George Parker visited himself. Part of the deal was that Parker Brothers agreed to sell Maggie's landlord game, but this did not go well. Stores threatened to stop selling Monopoly altogether if Parker Brothers didn't take back the landlord game off their shelves. It must have broken her heart. Not just because her dream of publishing Landlord's Game failed, but that her dream of spreading George's idea failed. Players didn't see injustice and hardship. They wanted to be the rich landlord. I don't want to be bankrupt, so I'll bankrupt everyone else. And other countries, including Cuba and the USSR, outright banned the game for its celebration of capitalistic competition, especially during the Cold War. But the strange thing is, this isn't even the most involved Monopoly was in a war. In World War II, thanks to its crazy popularity, Monopoly was allowed to be brought into POW camps from countries abroad. It, for one thing, kept POWs busy instead of planning escapes. Right? Right? <laughs> Wrong. Because inside these Monopoly boards were instruments for escaping, including tiny compasses, saws, and silk maps. Silk maps were important because they made no sound and could be hidden inside without getting damaged. Due to this, Waddington's was employed by MI9 because they were the only printer in the UK who could print on silk. Oh, and they also printed Monopoly. It would go like this. The cardboard base would have compartments cut into them where the agency could put a small compass, two files, and a silk map. Then the paper would be glued on top to conceal the hidden contraband. Based on the equipment and map contained therein, specific properties were marked with a period on the board. For example, if there is a period on free parking, the game concealed a map of northern France and its borders with Germany. To get this done, MI9 would create fake charities and fill the package with local paper. For example, if the charity was supposed to be from a Manchester charity, the package would be filled with Manchester City newspapers. The number of games that were snuck through like this is unknown because part of the instructions were to burn the game after using it, but after the information was declassified in the 1980s, many people wrote Waddington's thanking them or mentioning that they had seen the maps. 
The U.S., as it turned out, did something similar. Though they had agents painstakingly remove the glue, put the items in, then use the same glue as Parker Brothers to reattach the top of the boards. I guess they just really didn't want to work with Parker Brothers. All in all, Monopoly has had a crazy story in just over 100 years. From being conceived as a political education tool, to being stolen, to leading people to enjoy doing the very thing Elizabeth Maggie wanted them to despise, to being used in the war effort. Monopoly shows both the best and worst parts of capitalism. But one thing seems to be sure. No matter if you love or hate the game, it has played an important part of gaming in the 20th century. Oh, hey. I'm just here in yoga to practice my flexibility for my next game of Twister. You know, the game where you are on a mat with other people, somebody spins the spinner, and you somehow have to get to the dot with either your hands or feet without falling over. I played that game a lot as a kid, and I was terrible. Well, okay, I'm still terrible. I have about as much flexibility as a dry noodle. But did you know that the game originally was seen as problematic? Well, okay, let me back up. Twister was invented by St. Paul-based inventor Ryan Geyer in 1965. Geyer's firm, the Reynolds Geyer Agency of Design, was hired to do a local back-to-school promotional display for Johnson Brand's shoe polish. As Geyer tinkered with a colored polka dot paper mat to highlight kids' shoes, he realized he might be onto something bigger. A game where people acted as the game pieces. Geyer first called his invention King's Footsie, testing it out on some fellow artists and designers. Geyer pitched King's Footsie to 3M, but they passed. He then hired game designers Charles F. Foley and Neil Rabins to help him further develop the idea. The three of them came up with eight different game ideas for the polka dot mat. The obvious winner was called Pretzel, a test of balance and skill that eventually became Twister. But some executives at Mills and Bradley were uncomfortable with Twister's seemingly sexual undercurrents and felt it went against the company's clean image. In its first month on the market, Twister barely sold at all. Retailers were confused by it. Sears didn't think it was appropriate for their catalog. It was deemed sex in a box, even though Milton Bradley made the cover overly conservative with men in full suits and ties all the way up to their necks and women in sweaters buttoned up to their necks. Absolutely no skin was showing. And who's playing Twister like that? But don't worry. People watched Johnny Carson play it on the late night show, and it gained immense popularity. And as Foley said, clean mind, clean game. Dirty mind, dirty game. And guess what? This game almost kinda opened up what games could do in that category. It brought people physically close together, something that was really uncommon at the time, but was actually right on time. The sexual liberation movement with the invention of the contraception pill in books like The Joy of Sex being a 300-week bestseller loved the game. And boy, if the prudes thought Twister was bad, they had another thing coming. Because soon you had games that advertised themselves as sex in a box. And these games did well, though not as well as Twister because, well, Twister was not sex in a box. But what it did open the door for, as I mentioned with Monopoly 4, was the idea that games could be aimed at adult themes. Even though Twister was, in fact, not the negative publicity opened up the possibility that something could be. 
Now you have games like Monogamy, which seeks to liven up the mood for those struggling. And also games like Cards Against Humanity with extremely inappropriate cards. I don't want to say that Twister is a direct line to it, but it did become an almost accidental revolutionary, opening the door for what games could be like if they went full force into adult themes. Uh, well I gotta get back. See you next time. Namaste. Well, that will conclude part three of our four-part series, and we are on the cusp of modern board gaming, or what some call the golden age of board gaming. So far, we have explored what the first games looked like, with often religious overtones, to chess and backgammon, absolute classics that showed us how different cultures can transform a game into their own, to today's game showing us who we are in the moment, the good and the bad. Next week, we will conclude our series as we look at how Catan changed the board game industry, where we are today, and speculate where board games are going as a hobby. Thanks for joining us today. Today's episode especially, but also this entire series would not be possible without the hard work of Tristan Donovan in his book, It's All a Game, and I invite anyone interested in the topics I've discussed to go read the book. I get no money from you reading it, I just think it's really good. I'll have my source list in the episode description as well. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter, or if reviews are your thing, check us out on YouTube. Until next time, Oshimai!